Welcome to Uncharted Careers. I'm Courtney Hartman, and I talk with guests each week about their career paths to give listeners an insider look into different industries, how folks have made decisions in their careers, and we'll explore what each guest has learned along the way. I'm on a mission to share knowledge that is only learned in the field outside of a classroom. Join me to find inspiration for your own career. Welcome, everyone, to the first episode of Uncharted Careers in 2024. I wanted to just quickly thank you for continuing to tune in and listen as I have conversations with folks in all different industries to learn more about their career journeys, what they love about what they do, and how they got there. On this episode, you'll hear my conversation with Sandy Lenner. I've known Sandy for over a decade now because his daughter, Melissa, who has been on my podcast before, and I went to college together. In this chat, we talk about the pros and cons of going into accounting, what attracted Sandy to the industry, and what his work experience has been like over the past 40 years. I really like talking to him about how he found balance in his career while still having ambitions in his professional life. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you do, please give Uncharted Careers a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts, and thank you again for listening. Okay, what's bringing me a lot of joy is improving my tennis skills. And being able to play tennis three to four times a week and seeing that there's an opportunity to get better. Do you play singles or doubles? Singles only. I am 73 years old and I only play singles. And I'm very fortunate I can play in the heat. So here I live in, as you know, in South Florida. So it gets very hot in the summer, but... uh, you know, I'm, I'm playing, so mm-hmm. I, I enjoy it. And uh, in fact, I was supposed to go to a uh, tennis clinic in Boynton Beach this uh, weekend, my first one, but I had a family conflict, so um, I'm, I'm not going. But it, it, it's, it worked out for the best because I'm going to show you what the listeners can't see is I have a, a yeah. um, I'm showing you a... Um, wrist guard or some kind of temporary cast that I have because I, I hurt my wrist and I had surgery six years ago, something called carpal tunnel. You, know, yeah. you get it from a lot of typing and playing, playing, ten, playing tennis. And yesterday when I was at the orthopedist, she showed me and told me that a lot of violinists get this. And I said, why? And then she showed me that the stroke in tennis you're very much dependent on your wrist. When you play the violin, you're also dependent on the wrist. Oh, and she, and she plays the vi- movement. And she plays the violin. And then I kind of felt like I was having a I, – I was you because she was so interesting and maybe she should be a good candidate here. <laughs> because she was telling me that she had to make a choice in life. And a yeah. choice was to become a violinist or to be an orthopedic surgeon, and she chose to be an orthopedic surgeon. Wow. <laughs> that's a big choice. Man, carpal tunnel, I guess that's one of the hazards of the job as a CPA, always having to be on your laptop and typing. Uh, yeah, it's it, and anyone that types, and it's also a hazard if you play tennis, and if you're a dental hygienist, you know, when you're always – have to, you know, you're dealing with your hands and cleaning and, and your awkward positions. So, um, you know, fortunately, uh, hopefully this will go away. You know, the surgery gave me five years of good tennis play and I can still play now, but I, you know, but I have to watch it. Well, fun. I'm glad that you are getting outside a lot too. 
playing singles in the Miami Heat sounds like a lot. I guess it's good that you're used to it. Do you play tennis or did you play? Yeah, I do play. I don't love playing in the humidity of Florida. When I'm down there, I'll play very early in the morning to avoid it as much as possible. Um, But yeah, I play here sometimes in Brooklyn, sometimes when I'm visiting family in Florida. I'll sometimes splurge and pay for an expensive hour of court time in the city, which is like $150 an hour now. It's crazy. Um, Yeah, I try to as much as I can. Are you... uh crossing the path into the world of pickleball oh i'm loving pickleball <laughs> yes i've actually been playing pickleball a lot with my family like once a week yeah i i don't want to play pickleball yet my plan is if when i if i have trouble playing singles i will then play doubles and uh then uh uh, then I'll probably play either ping pong or pickleball. I haven't decided yet. But uh, pickleball's no, a lot of fun. Yeah, I think it's fun. But I, I saw a couple of videos where people lose their rackets and they go and they they're swinging a, a lot of middle aged people or mm-hmm. weekend warriors, so to speak, will mm-hmm. play pickleball with such enthusiasm of a sixteen year old, and the rackets fly. Yeah, and the rackets <laughs> sure, fly, light. and if you're you know, and it's, a, you know, in the kitchen, you're very close to the kitchen yeah. and you're, you know, you might hit your, your, uh, teammate. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you ever played paddle racquetball. That's also a problem. If you play against the handball courts with a paddle mm-hmm. and your opponent, you're there with someone, you, you, it's just a dangerous game. I think. Yeah, it can be. When I play with my brothers, they have a lot of topspin and hit it really hard. And I've been hit by the ball, a couple of times and I've hit somebody by accident with the ball, but I don't know. It doesn't hurt that much. It's a light ball. The racket will hurt you. Right. Yeah. Definitely want to avoid that. Well, tell me about what you do when you're not playing tennis. Tell me about your job right now. Okay. I am semi-retired and my tagline, my verbal tagline is, you know, People want to know what does semi-retired mean? We don't hear that term too often, and you know, and we also have our view of what a retired person is or could be. But um, I'm active. Uh, I'm I work 15. I try to work. My goal is 15 hours a week mm-hmm. and play uh, three to four times a week in tennis. I'd play every day, but I need to rest. Um, so, uh, that's what I'm doing right now. I, I, now I used to work, uh, when I lived in Manhattan and when I lived in Miami and I worked for large firms, you know, you'd work a lot more than 15 hours. I'd work probably on average about 60 hours a week. And it's hard to get to cut down just like a lot of things. If you're semi-retired, you know, you have to, uh, reduce what you're doing to, to make time for other things that you want to do, like tennis. So um, I'm working less. I'm trying to take on less clients. And as I mentioned before we started or in the beginning, I, I do um, use uh, YouTube videos as an inbound traffic feeder to my business. And I have six videos and, you know, you know I uh, get enough uh, action or calls or inquiries 
that it I, I refer out about two thirds or three quarters of what I receive, and I only work on one quarter of it because some of it I just will not handle more than a certain number of clients at a given time. Because in my business, sometimes it's not like surgery or going to the dentist, you're going to fill a cavity where you have to do it on the spot. People will start and then other things, other priorities come into their life and I'm put on the back burner. And when I was on vacation, I went on a family vacation uh, in the summer for six weeks in Colorado and um all of a sudden, five or six clients became very active. And for, and when Melissa and Alan came out there, I actually had to work 25 hours for three weeks in a row. And I didn't really like working 25 hours a week. Not a, you know. So that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm working less, enjoying tennis more. Uh, I wish I played tennis more when I was younger, you know, when I, when I was raising my family. Um, if you can ask me, why didn't you? I, I don't know. I guess I just had other things to do, you know, but um, so that's what I'm doing. I hope I answered the question. Yeah. When did you decide to go out on your own as an accountant and how did you pick the types of clients that you would be looking for? You mean in the second phase of my career? Because I yeah. worked with a large company for most of my life and, and then about uh, 12 years ago of uh, 15. 13, 14 years ago, uh, I was just tired of working in a large firm and I was getting to seeing other people working in smaller firms or by themselves. And that's probably something I regret that I was on, you know, when I was, uh, when I graduated college in New York City, we all, you know, were in these business groups and we took interviews together and it was like an honor to work for these large accounting firms and it was prestigious. And so that's the track I went. But um, I decided I got tired of all the layers of bureaucracy and, and that you had to go through. And it didn't really affect my career because um, I was able to become a partner in, in a national firm. So um, I, I did OK, you know, but. Um, it was just uh, here I am in my early 50s, and um, I'm getting tired of going to all these meetings, administrative meetings, and, and, and where I didn't really want to go to them, but you have to go up and, you know, or you have to go to these early morning meetings, and I just was tired of it, and uh, it was time for a change. It's like, like when you fall in love, you know, how do you know, you know, you just, it just happens. Yeah. What were the biggest challenges of going out on your own after working for a firm for so long? Well, challenges was, am I going to get clients? I could not serve the same kind of clients that I was serving before because you need a team. Um, and the team is the person you're speaking to on the on, on this podcast. I didn't, you know, it, I didn't want to... I want to get away from the employee model because basically I was tired of working with employees because it was um, a lot of management skills, which I didn't mind doing, but they don't teach you that in college. And, and um, it, it, it was, um, 
it was just time to get away from that and to do something different. Like I'll never forget about, I think about 25 years ago, um, I was, I, I remember it precisely. Um, it was the first time that someone complained to management about me, an employee. Oh, wow. And what happened was, it was very interesting. There was an Excel spreadsheet that I had a review mm-hmm. with her. And I looked, we went to the, to the computer together and she put it up. And, and, and first I look at it and she wasn't using formulas. She had a column numbers, mm-hmm. right? And you know, in Excel, you can use this at some feature. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So she wasn't using formulas. She was adding the numbers on an adding machine and then putting it into the spreadsheet. So I kind of said, and maybe I didn't communicate it in, in the most, uh, in a nice way, but, you know, how could you do this? You know, this <laughs> is the whole purpose of Excel. You're not supposed to add it twice. And then I said, could you do me a favor? I really can't see the screen. I'm going to go get a cup of coffee. Do you mind cleaning the screen? Because it was all full of fingerprints and, and her breakfast. So she complained that I was making a do menial duties that was beneath her. Like oh, cleaning gosh. a screen so we could do our job. I and, and while I was getting her a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was just just silly things like that. And and then as as you know, you progress, you have more people to deal with and more mm-hmm. different types of personalities. And um I just got tired of it. Yeah, I get it. Internal politics can be. Interesting I had no to politics. Navigate. No, I had. I, I really. I didn't really want to become the managing partner. Mm-hmm. I was very happy just being a partner. So I really wasn't in in the political role okay. there. But I was fortunate enough that I, I was able to bring in nice clients. I had a very nice practice mm-hmm. that sustained my existence in the firm. Yeah. Can you tell me more about the distinction between partner and managing partner? Oh, a managing partner manages partners. So it's... Okay. So it's kind of one level up from the partners. Okay. Partners have an equity interest and that's the highest level that you can be in a professional organization, whether it's a CPA firm, a law firm, an architectural firm, but someone has to manage those partners. Gotcha. So... So when you work in a national company, you will have a a managing partner in the local office. Mm -hmm. So if you have five offices in the city, you'll have five managing partners. Mm -hmm. And then then there's going to be a regional partner that will be responsible for your regions. And a region might have three or four states. Mm -hmm. So just and and then and then you have um, then when you're working in an international firm, you have a country managing partner, mm-hmm. and then you have a hemispheric partner. You know, it just gets, yeah. you know, then there's the global managing partner. Mm-hmm. So I was just, you know, I, I guess I was on the lower level, but I was a partner. What did you start as? Oh, I started when I was 21 years old as an entry-level accountant. Mm-hmm. So everybody starts at the same level, or is there any way to bypass that entry level? Okay, everybody starts the same Correct. way. Everyone starts at that level as, you know, if you have an MBA, you might be, you might start at a high level, but I just had a, 
a uh, undergraduate degree in mm-hmm. accounting. Okay. So you all start in the same level, basically. Okay. So what's the next level up from there? Oh, um, then there then there is well, the staff accountant, which is synonymous with the term junior accountant. And then there is a um, well. At my time, we used to have what's called the semi senior. And then you would have, now it's also called a senior accountant. And then after senior accountant, you had a manager. And then after manager, there's partner. In between manager and partner, if you could not be, if you weren't able to be a um, partner, uh, one reason might be you needed to be a CPA to be a partner. So they'd make you a principal which is you you have you may or may not have an equity interest but you cannot the, the states will not allow a non CPA to be quote a partner in a firm okay gotcha and aside from being a CPA what else got you to that successful level of partner um hard work yeah, <laughs> believe understanding what the Protestant ethic is all about. What we learned at school—that you know, hard work makes you know, makes you, helps you become successful, and putting in the hours and mm-hmm. and and being serious and communicating well, um, and and you know having somewhat of an intellectual capacity to understand and process. Mm-hmm what you need to do and how to deliver it to your boss or to your client so they understand and appreciate and see value in what you're providing them. Yeah, that makes sense. How many years went into you becoming a partner? How many years of hard work? Probably about uh, 10 to 12 years, somewhere like, like that. I think I was at you know, I wasn't super fast track. Some people do it in seven years or eight, 10 years. I was probably 10 or, or 11. But the key to become a partner is you, in addition to having an intellectual capacity, not a key, an important ingredient, is you also have the ability to attract and retain clients. Okay. What type of clients were you looking for and how did you find them? Well, when I was practicing um, in that time, it was before social media was invented or even thought of. So it was rather a traditional approach, you know, having lunch and having going out for cocktails and networking and going, becoming involved in nonprofit organizations and getting on the boards of organizations and um, and then um, contacting old friends and just we used to say, what's it called? Pressing the flesh or hitting the streets, whatever those terms were. But uh, it's just, you you had to go out prospecting, you know? So I didn't really, in, in that time, it was all that way. You know, we didn't, I didn't use mailing or cold calls, or obviously I didn't use social media, but um, it, it was, and I think it's done now that way too. Uh, yeah. you know, a, a lot of people do it that way. Yeah, folks need to be pretty well connected and really diligent about networking in order to reach 
and getting involved in community organizations because if you're on the board and you you, uh, you share a similar passion with those people with that same organization and they're going to want to do things with you they trust you and they hear you speak and and um, frequently accountants are the treasurers or deal with something financially uh, responsible at that nonprofit and and people hear you and and uh, you were hoping that they would ask you you know or you would ask them out for lunch mm-hmm. you know? and and um, um, that's how you would do it that's as we know that's networking or part of networking yeah outside of the networking piece what did your day-to-day look like when you were working for a firm I would take the train to where I was working. If I lived in Brooklyn or if I lived, I lived in the Upper West Side, I would take a train or I would, when I lived, or I'd rent a car to go to wherever the client was in one of the five boroughs. Most of them were in Manhattan, but some clients were then in, in, you know, like Westchester or in Long Island, or even here in Miami, it's here all driving. So you'd go to the client and um, because most of the work was done, at the client's facility because you had to always speak to the client, ask them, ask the client questions and then examine or read documents and look at their financial ledgers. And we, you didn't have zoom conferences or teams meetings where you can access their computer. Um, like we, like I do now. And, and uh, so you would go to the client's office and they give you an area where it would either be a separate room, um, I remember one client once gave us a large closet to work in. But, uh, <laughs> well, that's generous of them. Yeah, a, a very large closet. It was a drafting room. It, it was a okay. construction company. It was where they had the architects with the slanted tables. Mm-hmm. So we would uh, work there and um, at the time. And I, I remember that was in Roslyn, Long Island. And uh, it was a company there. And... Um, You'd just work there. You'd go out for lunch. You'd work. But if you were between staff and manager, you're working. You're not really networking. You're not reviewing other people's work. You're there to work and to at the, there's a concept which, um, which I'm sure if you're a professional and you bill for your time, it's billable hours. We had to bill a certain number of hours each day or each week to, sh- to prove to the management that you are productive, you know, because uh, that's how the firm makes money on, on your time. Yeah. What kind of targets would you have for billable hours per day or per week? You know what? I don't remember given targets mm-hmm. like you hear about with lawyers. Well, I got to work 80 hours a week. <laughs> yeah. You know, I knew I had to work and that's what I did. I worked 10 hours a day or mm-hmm. whatever it was, I was very chargeable. Yeah. I had work to do. Is that the biggest metric that you all would track in order to determine performance of the CPAs? Um, yeah. I mean, that there's hours and then more also, or more importantly, is getting it right, what you're doing, you know, doing the right thing. And uh, so, you know, uh, but lately I've been learning, you know, one of the things that I've learned is I, I like right now I bill uh, and I work with fixed fees. And because I don't have a firm, I don't have people working for me. And, 
and it's much easier to bill because when I when I was working in public accounting and I would I used to to give a I used to like to give a detailed bill so I would list each person what they did by day and what they the hours they worked the date they worked who the person was and what they did and how it was a value to the client so a bill if you're doing a bill for $30,000 could be 20 pages long I used to spend hours hours re- then you have to review the bill and you know you keep you know you have to keep reading and reading it and changing it but when you do fixed fee and you know at this point in your life you you should I know how to do things although you know 75 50 to 75% is uh, estimatable there's always things you don't expect okay you know but here um if if I'm over it's it's I generally stick to the fixed fee mm-hmm yeah, that definitely sounds like it would be a lot cleaner and easier. Yeah, much easier in life. Much easier. What would an average fee be in terms of billable hours versus a flat fixed fee? It depends. It that question is very hard to answer because if you're working for a very if you're working in a twenty person firm, your average client might be, I don't know, in a twenty person firm, say. $10,000 a year. If you're working in a one-person firm, your average client might be $4,000 a year or $5,000 a year. If you're working uh, in a large in the larger firms, the average client is $100,000 a year and or $200,000 a year. It, it depends on where you're working. I've had clients and fees, you know, you know, up, up to like a million and a half dollars a year for one client. Mm-hmm. But I was very busy. Yeah. That's why I worked more than 40 hours a week. When you have a client that's paying you a million dollars a year, you, you, you have to be very, it's, it's, it's very demanding. Mm-hmm. And was your compensation as an employee at the firm determined at all by how much the company could bill for your time or was your salary completely separate? Completely separate. Okay, gotcha. Your salary is like overhead. It's a. It's mm-hmm. you, you, if you're going to be paid, I don't know. Say you're making um, sixty thousand dollars a year. You get, that means it's thirty dollars an hour. You you know if if it doesn't make a difference what what client you work on because sometimes you work on clients where they don't pay everything that's billed you realize in 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 the world if if your billing rate is to say a number two hundred dollars an hour not every client's going to pay two hundred dollars an hour some clients can afford it and some clients will pay less and sometimes you just spend so much time on it you can't bill your time because you know people that are not familiar with the concept of time and billing all because you bill your time, it doesn't mean the firm is going to collect it. Quite frequently, firms enter into with clients contracts and say, okay, this is going to be, even if it's, even, you know, you might charge them this project going to be $25,000 and whatever the time is, it is. But the accountant, because the way we've been doing in this profession is everything is time. There are firms that are moving to value billing. What is it? 
what is it really worth? What do you love about accounting? Well, the tangible benefit is that it's given me a great life, you know, and it's given me the opportunity to have a family and to upgrade my status from sharing a bedroom with my mother in Brooklyn. We had a wall there, but, you know, I grew up in a three-room apartment, not three-bedroom apartment, okay? And uh, just giving me a life that I, I never had living, you know, in Brooklyn. So it, and, and um, it just, you know, gave me the time to uh, travel and it gave me, you know, just, it just added a whole new dimension to my life. And, and uh, it gave me the opportunity to, to do things. Um, I became an accountant because that's probably the next question is a very strange way. And that was, um, I had no father. And I asked my uncle, what should I, here I am at 17 years old or 18, and I'm about to be a freshman in college. What do I, you know, I face the same question many people face. What do you, what what do I do? You know, fortunately, I wasn't told, I hope I'm I'm not going to offend anyone. I I wasn't told, go into marketing. Okay. I didn't go into marketing. I, you know, he said, become an accountant because it's, the language of business, you'll understand people when they talk because you have to, we we look at things from a transactional point of view. If someone says, I'm making money, you know, I'm going to say, is that what the gross amount or the net amount? The difference is, you know, you know, is that after expenses or before expenses, you know, or how do things, why do things make, you know, how do things get recorded or What's a transaction like? You have to look at, not that I look at everything as a transaction, but once you discuss anything business with an accountant, they're, they're thinking about the transactional side of it. And, you know, in case some of the listeners have heard this, but we think of things, I mean, I analyze things in terms of debits and credits. And that's just the way, and very simply speaking, the ways of, of, analyzing and measuring transactions through debits and credits. And then it it helps you understand if the transaction makes sense. So it sounds like accounting really provided you with an opportunity for upward mobility. And portability, because as an accountant, I can work anywhere, not only in the country, but if I chose to work in the world, because accounting, I'm going to tell you something very strange, it's it's almost like music, you know, it's it's not that not that it's music to my ears, but music is the same music you're going to read in 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 Russia or in or in France or in, in the U.S. Just like accounting, it's all the same. And are CPAs recognized internationally, or is that purely American? No, there's different. Uh, they there are. I don't know what the terms are in foreign countries. Each country has some, okay, yeah. Like I think in Canada or in the UK, it's a chartered accountant. Um, here, it's a certified public accountant. So there are, there are uh, classifications for accountants. Once you take a certain exam and you pass it, then you become a uh, CPA or a chartered accountant in your country. 
And folks are able to be accountants without necessarily having the certified public accountant certification, right? Absolutely. You go to college, you get a degree in accounting, and you can work as an accountant, but you cannot become a partner in a CPA firm. But you don't need to be, if you're going to work in private accounting, that's working, say, for a company like, say, you're going to work for um, Exxon or Dell or Macy's, you don't need to be a CPA. You can be an accountant and work there or an analyst, but uh, you don't need a CPA to succeed in a private business, mm-hmm. but you would need it to be in a CPA firm. How do you become a CPA? Is it a test that you study for and then you pass or what does that look like? It's a very comprehensive test. It covers four, when I took it a long time ago, it covered four areas. I think it's four areas now. Uh, now in the state of Florida and many other states, um, they have, you have to go through five years of education. Oh, when okay. I went there, it was, when I went, it was four years of education. Okay. Um, and uh, so it's basically five years. There's a lot of uh, discussion about lightening up that requirement or reducing that requirement because it's uh, affecting the supply and demand of accountants. A lot of people that are 21 years old and graduating college need a job and they can't wait another year, okay, to school that maybe they can't afford another year and they go elsewhere. So it's causing a little bit of stress on the accounting practice. Oh, interesting. So most folks now with the five-year requirement, they're doing some sort of master's program or something like that? No. Yeah, you could. I think so. You could do a master's program or you can just get that one-year requirement with that. I I don't know, but you need one more year of accounting classes. And then you're certified for life or do you have to continue to take courses? Kind of. The reason I say kind of, because every two years you have to take a certain number of credits to keep your license active. Here in the state of Florida, uh, we have to have 80 credits of continuing professional education, which is 40 credits or 40 hours a year we have to take on accounting and tax and technology to maintain your license. Unlike other professions, you don't need to, it's not as rigorous. Yeah. I was going to say, that's kind of a lot. It is a lot, but Mm -hmm. uh, that's what it is. And you have to pay for those courses, I'm assuming? Yeah, they're not expensive. Mm -hmm. Okay. They're not expensive. I I think, honestly, it's uh, $400 a year or something. Okay. It's not a lot of money. What's something you learned along the way in your accounting career that you wish you knew earlier? I wish this is outside of the career that I I, I made more time for non-accounting things because mm-hmm. I was very dedicated to accounting. Yeah. Uh, to give you an example, when I was studying for the CPA exam on weekends, I just I used to go to the NYU library downtown right by the Brooklyn or the Manhattan Bridge. And it was quiet there or or at NYU and find the room and lock myself up for like eight hours and just go to a bodega for lunch or get something and then go back to studying. So it kind of like like I just needed to isolate myself and work very hard. I, I wish I would have had a little more fun, you know, um, 
some I more balance. I would have, yeah, a little more fun in it, but I was very extreme about it. To get to the level of becoming a CPA and then working so hard to becoming a manager and then a partner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you were so ambitious and you had these goals in sight and wanted to do everything that you could and work the hardest that you could in order to get there. Um, but I do think it's important to have fun along the way and still live your life. Um, no, I had I had fun. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to tell you things during this podcast. That were fun. <laughs> Don't ask me that question. I'll be over I'll a drink. drink the next time in yeah. my, I'm in yeah, Miami. Okay. But but uh, I certainly will. But um, I had I had some fun. Uh, maybe um, one thing I learned about people, and maybe about myself, and this was later in life, maybe about ten or fifteen years ago, is that, and it's contrary to to whatever I've been telling you, is there's nothing wrong with being average in life, because what I learned and I saw it. Most people are way below average. And we have this thing, oh, I have to be at the top 10, you know, of whatever I'm doing, the top. But I think as long as you're like above the average, you're doing fine. Yeah. And maybe don't stress and kill yourself because a lot of people are going to fall out because they're below average because they just don't show up to work. They don't have the patience. They drink too much. They they just lot. They get things interfere, you know. And and I guess that really helped me. There's nothing wrong with being average. And you know, I try to tell that to people, and and they look at me like you're crazy because it's almost contrarian to what we've been program to achieve in life. Yeah. I mean, that's a total shift in mindset, I would think, from what we're taught all along when we're growing up and in school, that it is really important to be at the top of your class and to be in the top 10%. But if you're able to live your life and have balance and do your job well enough, you know, that's a happy life too. You know, but I think this this comment only relates to work for some reason. I don't know if thing because I know how competitive it is in high school to get to college, and if you had that attitude, you may not, um, you know, you may not get into an elite college if that's where you want to go to or to you know to something. But um, uh, I'm happy with it. I guess I use that approach a little bit in tennis. Uh, <laughs> As long as I can hit the ball deep and um, I'm not going for the perfect low net slam and I'm just trying to uh, to win the game uh, strategically and it's it's much easier. Yeah. I need you to tell my brothers that when they're playing against me in pickleball. <laughs> it's okay to not hit a winning shot right at me every time. Oh, silly. Those are the people that are going to hit you in the head yeah. with their yeah. racket. So you have to stay clear and then you lose the game because you're, like, you're not going to, you'll be off the court with those people. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to me, Sandy. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate you being on. My pleasure. And uh, it was great to see you again. Go to unchartedcareers.com if you're interested in one-on-one career coaching or are looking to learn more about uncharted careers and my coaching approach.
Thanks for listening. <laughs>